one year I kind of got an idea, you know, I almost tried trap. I like to trap, I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the fur boom. This is Northern Michigan, this is what you do. Trappers love being trappers in a positive light. I'm gonna ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Herb Lennon Game Magazine. Instruction from Herb Lennon. Herb Lennon's articles, the Herb Lennon ads to information, trapping radios. We are trappers on ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. Alright, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because we're working ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got variables to change the characters, you got bog trap. They start talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't get them better. Trying to set predator trash and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like a sheer. You better edit this part out. Yeah, it was better. Back in the fur shed. This is Trapping Today, and I am Jeremiah Wood. Thanks for tuning in. We're brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. Traps, snares, baits, lures, lure-making supplies, everything you need to get started on the trap line. Also brought to you by Onyx Maps. Use your phone as a GPS on the trap line. Mark your trap locations, run tracks, check landowner information, and scout the latest aerial imagery. Onyxmaps.com, code TRAP. And finally, Moyle Mink and Tannery. What are you going to do with your fur this year? You got plans for it? going to try to sell it in this super low fur market what if you just caught a few animals and uh, you haven't decided what to do with them and you're not really sure and you haven't uh, you haven't sold much in the fur market it's not a good time maybe you want to do what i wish i would have done preserve those memories and get your fur tan uh, hang it up on the wall maybe make a set of mitts or a nice beautiful fur hat a lot of people are starting to do that but the way to do that is have a tan by the professionals, guys. Don't learn on the job with the first few pelts um, or with valuable pelts, uh, otherwise valuable pelts, even though the market stinks. Um, check out Moyle Mink and Tannery, moyle.net, M-O-Y-L-E. They have been doing this forever. They are the best. They produce an unbelievably beautiful tanned fur product uh, with your fur. And it's very reasonably priced, so check them out. I'm actually hoping to have someone on from Moyle here in the coming weeks. So looking forward to talking with them a little bit more. Um, I do want to try doing uh, some of my own fur tanning at home, but I definitely am not going to risk it with uh, with top quality furs while I'm just getting started. So I have a huge shipment of furs into Moyle right now, and I, I've never had a bad experience with them. Um, and it's really super easy to do everything uh, with them online through that new customer portal they have. Uh, I've got a, okay, we got a big grab bag of things to get through in uh, this episode. But I wanted to start by mentioning a few new things from OnX. Um, I, I haven't, I've been getting a lot of updates from them, uh, from, from Jared, who was on the, the show here a few months back. And they're, they're, the company is just constantly growing. They have so many different things going on, and they're, they're, they're doing new things all the time. I actually just saw, I had an email the other day where they purchased this, uh, they bought a company 
that did a bunch of uh, hiking trail mapping. And so it looks like they're getting into that side of the business. Uh, they've got the Onyx off-road app that's roll, been rolled out. They've got 3D map viewing on your desktop and uh, a pile of other new features. A couple of the things that I've been learning about recently, uh, trim track, the trim track feature. So I've done this a hundred times. I go out on the trap line and I'm running my track. Things follow me around on my phone. I'm marking traps here and there. And I get done at the end of the day and I forgot. I forget to turn off the, the tracking. And so the thing tracks me all the way back home. <laughs> and I do these, I, I, I save my track. I get home and I realize I forgot to turn it off. So I turn it off and, and it automatically saves. You know, you hit, you hit, uh, hit okay and the thing saves and it backs itself up to the web app, um, to the Onyx cloud somewhere. But you always have that long stretch of highway or road or, or uh, you know, the area that you got out of the woods and you drove back home and to going right to your driveway at home. Every track seems to start end with the driveway when you forget to do that. So they have a new feature called trim track and you can just click on a point and, and trim off that excess track that where you left the woods or where you left your trap line. And so, and just easily get rid of that and clean it up uh, very simply so that you don't have to worry about that. Um, they also have a, uh, Another feature to where where you can now uh, use the the distance, the measure tools, the drawing tool, and all that um, without having to use straight line segments. So if you want to measure the distance of a, a trail that's pretty crooked, you know you keep clicking and clicking all around and making all these points to try to cut off all the corners, get all the corners in there and everything. Well, now they have a new drawing tool where you can kind of just trace those areas uh, that that do not have any straight lines in them to speak of. So that's a lot simpler. Uh, improved uh, drawing tools in the web app, trim your tracks. They have, in in the Elite benefits, if you're an Elite member of Onyx, now they have teamed up with TopRut, which is a company that provides all of the draw odds for big game hunting in western states. And if you're into that, if you're a hunter too and you want to check that out, it's a a really useful resource and if you're an elite member member you get free access to all the top rat information so you can figure out where you want to put in for for tags for different big game species um yeah and then let's see what else they got i had one more thing i wanted to look at no that was it so if you haven't tried onyx yet uh, check them out, onyxmaps.com. And for your first purchase, you want to get a sweet 20% discount. You enter the code TRAP, T-R-A-P. And uh, that, that helps support us as well over here. Um, a lot of listener feedback the last week or two. I had uh, a lot of people enjoyed the interview with Philippe from Virginia. And uh, that kind of, a lot of people said it was you know kind of refreshing to, to hear a different perspective as well as how how excited and into it Philippe was uh, from the the standpoint of being a new trapper and kind of discovering all this stuff and and the emotional side of, of trapping as well a lot of good feedback there a lot of people want to get in touch with Josh he looks like he's making a couple of hats for people now and uh, and going back and forth kind of helping each each other learn about sewing and, and helping other trappers sort of learn a little bit about different methods for sewing fur. Um, I had quite a few general questions 
that I, I just, they were quick, easy answers. And I didn't think they were something that we would get into here in the podcast. And, and I actually had three or four more on Martin trapping <laughs> after all those, that uh, slew of Martin episodes. Uh, when, when I thought half the audience was probably burned out on Martin, we had a bunch of new questions, uh, get from uh, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, and Alaska. And, uh, and then another from Alaska with more suggestions on, on things that I could have, uh, explained better. But again, I'm not going to get into those. I, I think I'll, I'll pull those out in some future episode, but, but a couple of us emailed back and forth and, and did get down a rabbit hole quite a bit on, on Martin populations and population management or lack thereof and, and all of that other good stuff. So that was good. Um, I wanted to mention something about the Trapping Today store. If you haven't gone to the store lately, it's still up and running. It looks like uh, Postal Service may have, I mean, we're still seeing delays, but they're they're coming around. Things are seem to be getting a little better. There's fewer complaints anyway. We'll leave it at that. I won't get my hopes up too much. But I did add a unique item onto the store this week. Um, I For some of you who've been listening for a very long time, I purchased some traps a few years ago at Neil Olson's Trappers Weekend that had belonged to Russ Carmen. And for folks who don't know Russ Carmen, uh, he was a legend in the trapping industry back in the 70s during the, the big fur booms back then. Uh, he made his living trapping and making lure. He is probably the most knowledgeable lure maker in the United States. I, I don't think that that's a stretch to say that. He has written quite a few books on trapping and lure making and actually got to meet him the last time I was at Neil's. He, he was there and I got to talk with him for a while. And that was, that was really great to, to have the opportunity to, to sit down and, and get a little bit of a down to earth conversation with a, someone who has been an icon in the industry for so long. But anyway, one of Russ's friends was selling some, some old uh, Russ's old mink traps that still had his tags on them and were used by Russ on the trap line. He painted them up, a little custom camouflage paint. They're 120 body grips. And I've used some of them on my trap line. But I had some lying around here, and I thought that maybe I'd throw one or two up on the store and uh, give people, maybe someone, a chance to, to have a piece of history and have one of Russ Carbon's old traps to, to hang on the wall or to, to kind of to display or just, just to have as a collector. So I put one of Russ's 120s up on the store and we'll see if anybody's interested in it. Just go to trappingtodaystore.com. There's a new category there for traps. I may have some, I buy and sell a lot of traps, so I may have some unique traps that, uh, that from time to time that I think are kind of interesting that I don't feel like putting up on eBay or anything. Maybe I'll throw them up on the store here too. But anyway, go check that out for 25 bucks free shipping. You can have a, one of Russ Carbon's old traps. The other news, let's see, I got a call the other day from Mike Marchuka. And Mike writes for, he's a, he's a trapper from Illinois. I think he's a retired teacher or something. And he writes for most of the trapping magazines out there. Great guy, real nice guy. And he, I, I sent him, he does book reviews and product reviews for uh, Trapper's World. And I sent him a copy of Walter Arnold book. Uh, oh, probably 
couple months ago. And he put together and oh, he, he actually just kind of mentioned it in passing in his column in the uh, American Trapper magazine, which is if you don't get that, that means you're not a member of National Trappers Association. So you should get on that, support the NTA because they uh, support pr- protecting, preserving trapping rights throughout the country. But also the you get a pretty sweet magazine with a lot of information on what's going on in, in trapping uh, in general. And Mike mentioned it in his column that I wrote this book about Walter Arnold and he thought it was pretty interesting. I also sent a copy to Rich Failer, who is the editor of the magazine and uh, never really heard anything back from him. But uh, Mike called and he was going to, he had some questions because he was writing an article, I think for Trapper's World on this, uh, on this book. And he said, Hey, I really want to apologize. I, I, uh, I wrote in my column in, in American Trapper that that your book was written by Scott Doms. And if you guys don't know, Scott Doms is the guy that did the book on E.J. Daly and Walter Gibbs. And uh, he's working on a bunch of those historic Trapper books. He's, he's, uh, he's a real good writer as well. And um, I didn't I hadn't seen it. I, said, I don't know what you're talking about, but okay, no, you know, no big deal. He said, I'm real sorry. I, you know, I... So I just opened the, uh, yesterday I opened my American Trapper magazine, which I, I had gotten and I hadn't read all the way through. And there's a correction in his column that says, uh, the beginning of Marchuka's column in the st- September, October, American Trapper credited Jeremiah Wood as author of the new book, Walter Arnold, Main Trapper. That was incorrect. The actual author is Scott Doms. Sorry for any confusion this may have caused. Editor. So, so the correction is in an incorrect correction of a correct uh, statement. <laughs> so, if you're reading that and you get any uh, confusion over that, yes, I wrote the Walter Arnold book. No, no, Scott Doms didn't, and uh, Rich should have known that because he got a free copy of my, the book with my name on it. Um, but you know that happens. No big deal. Uh, but I just thought I'd I'd bring that up. I thought it was kind of funny. So, speaking of writing, I am working on a couple of writing projects. And this has been, it's, I, I've been kind of work going through this stuff over the past few weeks. Um, I, I haven't said much about them, but I'm going to tonight, I guess. Um, one is, uh, I've, I've written, uh, I've, I felt the need to really write about my trip last year to Alaska where I went with with uh, Jim Furman and trapped in the bush of interior Alaska for a couple weeks it was obviously as you might imagine an incredible experience and you heard a lot about it in those podcast episodes around that time last winter it, it was it left a great impression on me and Almost a year had gone by, and I was looking through all my notes that I took while I was there. I kept a little journal. I didn't write in great detail, but I, I tried to keep up with the day-to-day uh, things that, that went on. And I realized I was starting to forget a lot of the details already, a year later. And I really felt the need to to write things down in greater detail. So to kind of, I don't know, I guess uh, preserve that those memories a little better for me personally. And I've been toying with the idea of sharing that with others in, in book form. And I, I haven't, I still, I, I guess I talked with Jim about it. I didn't want to 
share, you know, too many personal things about him if he wasn't cool with that either, you know, um, uh, writing, writing a book or stories or short stories or anything. And, um, and, and we talked about it and, and he was for the most part very much fine with that. Um, but I'm, I'm still, I'm still bouncing the idea around in my head. Um, but one of the things that I considered was, you know, I may write this whole thing and never share it with a soul. Um, I don't think that's, uh, really what I want to do, but, um, I put it this way. I, I have, uh, I have written approximately 35,000 words, uh, on this trip from start to finish. And last night I kind of wrapped things up uh, of sort of a rough draft of, of this entire, uh, journey. And it sits now and I am, am still trying to decide how, how I want to go about that, whether I do want to share it as a as a book and, uh, with other trappers and with the non-trapping world as well with, you know, with a, maybe hopefully a wi- wider audience. Um, I don't, I don't, it's kind of a, one of those things, you know, as a personal trip and it's a really, there's a really valuable memories and I almost don't want to blow that up to the outside world. And, and, uh, I certainly don't think it's going to create a, a huge rush of people trying to go into that area to trap, but you know, that's always in the back of your mind as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm still, I'm still thinking about it, but, but that's been a big project. I've spent a lot of time on that, Uh, not because it needed to be done necessarily from an external standpoint. It's just, I internally needed to do that. Um, the second writing project, I'm going to get into a little bit more detail around the edges of it, uh, in tonight's episode. And it, it involves, uh, Manly Hardy, the, the uh, the old timer fur buyer from Central Maine who spent time in the woods of Northern Maine in the 1850s and 1860s, and he became somewhat of a historian uh, because of how knowledgeable he was about the woods. And later in life, he wrote uh, stories about his uh, experiences out in the woods. And as you might imagine, very few people wrote about things that took place in the 1850s and 1860s in the woods. So it's incredibly fascinating. I I don't think another word can describe it other than fascinating Um, information and stories. And I felt, uh, you know, we discussed the Manly Hardy book. It's an awesome book. It's got a, a couple of trapping stories in it and pretty extensive trapping stories, uh, one in particular. And then it's got a bunch of writings on different species, and it's got a biography that um, Bill Crone wrote about Manly Hardy and his life. Um, the book is a really cool resource, and it's it reprinted all this old Manly Hardy uh, work, but it's very difficult to find. And it's, uh, it's 300 and 340 pages or so. If you can find it, you're going to pay about $100 for it right now because they printed such a limited number of them. And I don't believe there's any plans to reprint this. It was printed in 2005, more than 15 years ago. Um, as a trapper, I felt that the one story in particular, A Fall Fur Hunt in Maine, which is, I don't know, it's it's a very extensive story. It's very long. I felt as though that uh needed to be shared. I, I thought it was so incredible from a trapping standpoint um, 
in in a historical standpoint on how things were back then, how remote they were, what went on in the woods, the types of traps that were used, the types of animals, the you know all the all the different methods, building I mean building cabins to trap out of before they even had stoves. I mean it's just incredible stuff. So uh, I. I'm planning to uh, reprint that portion uh, of the book. It's 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 in public domain. It doesn't belong to anybody. Uh, you can actually go and find a fall for a hunt in Maine and a, a PDF copy of the old original online if you're interested. But it's very difficult to read. It's uh, it's typed in kind of really old school typing, and it's electronic, so you gotta scroll up and down the screen and and try to keep keep up with it and you got to sit in front of your screen to read it so I felt there was value in reprinting that in a more digestible manner um, and form that's easier to read and uh, potentially both electronic and book but starting with a physical book form so I'm, I'm working on that stay tuned for more and in tonight's episode I'm going to read you a passage from a portion that I'm not going to print but I thought was uh very indicative of what you you will hear if you end up purchasing this book or, or finding it online. So we'll get into that. I do have a couple more items. Um, I well I guess I guess one more item. So I mentioned uh, a few weeks back kind of jokingly that I need to hire somebody to help me keep up with all this stuff. And I'm at the point where uh, things have grown almost to where they're, they're too big for me to be able to adequately handle with all the other life responsibilities that I have. Um, and, and when I say things, I mean the podcast, the YouTube channel, the Instagram, the website, the writing projects, and uh, and actual trapping. <laughs> so I, I, I've, I've started to kind of think more about that. The problem is I'm not big enough to the point where I'm making the money where I could could justify hiring somebody to, to help with some of those tasks. And I did have somebody offer uh, this week, one of uh, our fellow podcast listeners, who who offered to, to maybe uh, help me out in that arena. And I got... He really got me thinking about it because I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about it in detail before then. And I came to the realization that in order to set somebody up to actually help me with a lot of the things that I need to help with would require a lot of big changes. Um, you know, any business, I think, transitioning from uh, something that's a hobby to a, to a sole proprietorship and a sort of a single person business to something bigger is going to require a huge effort. And I certainly recognize that I'm not ready for that. Um, it would require more effort than uh, I think I have to give right now in order to get someone all trained up to that and set up systems where um, multiple people can access accounts and and help me with things that you know that I that don't right now only I can do. So that I, I kind of uh, I kind of decided to put that on hold just a bit. Um, still kind of keeping it on the back burner. However, it, it really did get me to thinking. And, and it was interesting that uh, his his offer, you know, I, 
initially I, I thought, well, what, what could I do? How where would I have to pay and how would all that work? And he came back and said, no, I, I just appreciate so much what you're doing with the podcast that I thought I'd, you know, I wanted to help out. And, and that was, that was really, um, that was, I, I thought that was pretty amazing. So it was a little bit overwhelming to me that, that there are people, and I've heard this before that, that are, are real thankful about, you know, getting this information for free. Of course, you're listening to advertisers and that's helping. That's what, what really pays the bills. So you do kind of pay by supporting Cots Bros, by supporting Onyx and now Moyle making tannery and going to the Trapping Today store and buying my shirts and lures and, and books and all that. Um, but, but still a lot of people do want to help out and, uh, and don't want anything in return, which was fascinating to me. So, uh, I, I'm still, I'm still sort of spinning the wheels on all this and trying to decide where, where it's all going to end up. Um, but when I look at what I, what I'm doing right now, and I look at what I want to do and what I feel like I'm right on the edge of being able to achieve in, in the trapping world. I mean, I don't want to make this out to seem like it's bigger than it is, but um, I start brainstorming a little bit and there's so many different things and so many possibilities that we could get into. It's just, it's mind blowing and it's exciting thinking about it, but I can't get there from here. Um, I can't get there from, you know, putting, putting 10 or 20 hours a week into it in in the evenings and and weekends, days off. Uh, So, so there are certain steps that I want to take that will get me a little bit closer to there. Um, but I need I need to figure out a way to to uh, enlist I guess enlist the help of others, while not also uh, making it into a, a huge burden to to try and make that happen. So here's one of the things that I came up with that that made sense to me. Um, as you know, uh, there's a lot on trappingtoday.com the website. I've been doing that for since 2010. So there's a lot of information in, in there. There's hundreds and hundreds of old posts on different articles and trapping, news, a lot of fur price stuff. But lately, as you probably have seen if you're a vi- regular visitor of the site, is mostly it's just posting the podcast episodes. And I, I've, I've been thinking about that for quite a long time, and that's been bothering me a little bit because I do know there are a lot of things... Um, you know, when you get a weekly newsletter, if you're signed up for the newsletter, um, I don't promote that. Notice I haven't asked you to sign up for the newsletter in forever because all it is is a, a weekly update on what's going on on the website, which is the podcast, which is great. But there's nothing else. And I think it would be awesome to have uh, an actual newsletter every week or every month uh, consistently. And I'm not going to do it unless I know I can do it consistently where you really do get several really valuable articles and insights and trapping news and maybe some uh, listener uh, photos and and uh, input and feedback and all that stuff and just more of a community thing. I, I think that would be a great thing to produce, but I'm, I haven't been able to, to get that done. The other thing is I have a an entire framework of posts that I would like to put up on that site that I know there's demand for out there in the trapping world for people, whether they're experienced or they're just starting out. And I do not have the time to be able to write all those. I have, I have uh, several dozen right now in the back of my mind and I've written some down and I think I could come up with probably a couple of hundred 
uh, different posts that, that I think need to be on that website. So here's what I have in mind, and we'll see if I get any feedback from this from you guys, because I know just based on my interaction with the listeners who email me, jrodwood at gmail.com, and ask questions and provide feedback, you guys, for the most part, are a very skilled group of writers. Uh, you're very articulate, you're well-educated, um, and I've been incredibly impressed with the caliber of people that, that listens to, to listen to this show. So I know there's a group of good writers in there. And there are people who have experienced trapping, certain aspects of trapping, that they could share with others. So um, what I would like to do is if you do have a particular trapping expertise or experience uh, that you are willing to share and you want to do some writing for trapping today, why don't you shoot me an email and let me know what you're interested in and, and what you think you might be able to provide. And I don't know, maybe maybe I can share the list of, of article examples that I have in mind that I would like to do something with. And, uh, and then we can bounce that back and forth. And um, some of them might, might be free articles. Uh, some, at some point, if you, uh, I, I probably would envision it starting off as free. Um, in other words, I won't be able to pay you for them. Uh, but if you establish yourself as a really skilled writer who provides quality information for the site, you know, I think, I think it wouldn't be long before I could pay $10 or $20 for an article, depending on what it was about and, and what it was writ- you know, how long it was and the content and all that. And then, uh, potentially even go further, further from that and, and increase in advance as, as the snowball gets rolling and things get bigger and more people are visiting the site uh, we can get uh, more ad revenue and justify paying a little bit more uh, for those things. And maybe maybe a few you can earn a little extra income off of something that uh, that you're just doing for fun anyway. So email me, jrodwood at gmail.com if you're interested in that. And no, no commitment necessary or anything. Uh, let's just bounce some ideas off each other. And, uh, and uh, I, you know, here's, here's an example. Um, I'd love to see... Uh, I have, I have almost no experience with dog proof trapping. I love to see one of you guys write an overview of all the different types of dog proof traps. Uh, what's, what's good about each one of them, the, the, the positive and the negative of each trap and the different attributes of them. I'd love to see an article on the different methods for, for dog proof trapping. Um, I would love to see, it, let's say you tried uh, you tried a new a new trap a new coyote trap and you you set a few dozen of them out for a season and you learned a bunch and you have observations to share you could write an article you could write a review of that trap or, or that new trapping product any trapping product uh, new product reviews are are really important to share with other trappers uh, what you like, what you don't like, honest reviews, things like that. Those are always in uh, in demand. Um, I I don't know as there's much that I want to do in terms of oh this is you know my trapping story, my trapping experience. There's some of that 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 is probably going to be good, but I'm thinking more of a, a broad uh, t- topics that in, involve either. Uh, trapping products or trapping techniques, methods, and information 
uh, based on your experiences. Uh, going beyond that, beyond the article thing, I have a lot of other things. You know, I've got I've got species information for a number of species on the website. That section of the site has been pretty stagnant. I have not updated or added to that or or completed the species profiles for them. So that's that's been a long in the waiting. Um, there are things that someday, if if I can get to to hiring someone to do a bunch of writing, there's a lot of information from the podcast. You know, and and I've tried the transcribing podcasts or having them transcribed automatically. It just doesn't work that well. There, you you have to go in and spend a lot of time editing them because this the software, the technology just isn't quite there yet. Um, I do every single episode I do. I do get a um, a transcription emailed to me from a company that that's partnered with my podcast host. But I look at it and there's just so many things I'd have to go through and edit and fix that I'd essentially have to almost rewrite the whole thing. So I, I haven't actually gone to post that. But when I do an interview with somebody about a particular topic and we go on about, you know, for 20 minutes about some specific aspect of trapping a certain species or whatever, an article could easily be written on that, posted to trappingtoday.com and be there for someone searching for that type of information to find and, and learn more about that. So that's... Uh, that those are things in the future that I, I would like to broaden out and continue to expand and grow everything. I'm, I'm all about growth, expansion, uh, constantly moving and improving. And that's uh, w- without getting overwhelmed and, and stressed out and all that e- either because this stuff all do, does have to be fun. But I thought I'd kind of dump that on you. And, and if you are one of those people who has been listening in and, and is somewhat interested in that, um, let's let's get together and talk. You do have to have some level of experience to be able to write from, but um, you also don't have to be a pro either. You know, you, you just have to have a, a working knowledge on what you're writing about. So, um, or the ability to do some research. There are some topics that someone could could sit down for a while and do a little bit of research online and and produce a a pretty informative uh, article. So, jrodwood at gmail.com. Let me know. Always great to hear from you guys either way. Okay, let's get into some historic trapping outdoor uh, writing from Manly Hardy. This is uh, something that I've been wanting to do for quite a while, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. Uh, If you are anything like me in in your enjoyment of the history of all this stuff, this isn't just your normal history history. or what we might consider history, this is early, early, early history. So Manly Hardy was a fur buyer and outdoorsman in Maine. He uh, was born and raised in Brewer, Maine. His father was the largest fur buyer in the Northeast. He bought anything from uh, bear and moose hides to, uh, to everything that was trapped. Martin, Fisher, beaver, mink, otter, fox... Uh, and wolves. There were no coyotes in Maine at the time. Manley was born in 1832, and he uh, took over eventually his father's business. He worked in his father's business all his life, as far as I know. And so he was more of kind of a city guy, I guess you might say, but he loved the outdoors. He was an avid naturalist. He was an incredibly keen observer. 
for his time. He was uh, one of those guys that went down in history with with all the uh, all the other kind of uh, historic historic naturalists that that had plants and birds and other species named after them and, and wrote all this old original stuff about the different species and everything. So he was into that. He was into being outdoors, camping, hunting, and uh, obviously he was into trapping. Um, they, they called it, to some extent it was trapping, but they oftentimes referred to it as fur hunting uh, back then as well, this uh in the in the old days this is a time in history if you were in one of the western states it's probably hard to believe that prior to the civil war there were people roaming all over the woods of maine maine was settled much earlier maine became a state uh in 1820 so there was uh and prior to that there was there was lots of settlement in the state um, in, in the, it was actually part of Massachusetts. Um, but, you know, all the way back to the Revolutionary War times and, and prior to that, there was settlement throughout a lot of Maine. Um, it wasn't until uh, more into the, uh, to the 1860s to 1880s when uh, parts of where I live today started becoming settled. Uh, however, there were still people throughout the woods. Uh, there were lumbermen throughout the woods in Maine, uh, beginning uh, far bef- before that. So there, there, the woods were active. Um, this was a time when, out west, the Indians were roaming the plains. There was uh, the homesteaders hadn't made it yet. The st- territories had not become states. It was uh, r- prior to even a lot of the mountain man era. You know, the, the West was, was really just a kind of an undiscovered area back then in a lot of cases. But uh, th- this is uh, from 1861. And the the book that I'm looking at reprinting and working on right now is, is called uh, A Fall Fur Hunt in Maine. And it took place in 1859. So Hardy at the time... Uh, would have been like 20, uh, would be, he'd be 26, 27 years old when he went here. He would have been 28 or 29 when he, when he did this uh, woods walk in 61, which I'm going to read from. And he uh, actually wrote this, he wrote these, these two different uh, pieces of work much later in his life. So he took a bunch of notes and kind of kept a journal when he was out in the woods doing this trapping work and, and exploring and everything. But he, he never actually um, wrote, wrote the stuff up until much later in his life. Uh, and a lot of it was written with the aid of his, one of his daughters who, who became a real big uh, uh, promoter of a lot of his works. And he was writing for magazines like uh, Forest and Stream, which in a lot of these articles would have would have been written and published somewhere around the early 1900s. So just a little background on this from uh, Fanny Hardy Ekstrom, who is Manley's daughter. And this is something that Bill Crone put together from her uh, letters describing this article, uh, A Maine Woods Walk in 61. And no, that's not 1961, that's 1861, prior to the Civil War. 
It says, this article was originally published as a three-part series in Forest and Stream. Unlike the previous trip to the Maine woods, Hardy had no journal to use as a reference when he wrote this story. As Fanny Hardy Ekstrom uh, noted, the woods walk was done by father from memory, there being no record of this walk. He had been very ill, and to amuse him, I used to talk with him about his woods journeys and encouraged him to dictate this to me. It was entirely a matter of memory with him. His memory was phenomenal. So that's pretty cool. He, he was, uh, boy, it's pretty amazing. He was able to, to gather all this information. One of the things I will say, and, and that I'm going to note in the fall fur hunt uh, stuff, is that he was, this guy was not a BS artist. Unlike a lot of the writers back in that day, in those times, if you go back to the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, and read a lot of the outdoor stuff, it was all bullcrap. I mean, the guys were telling these stories about getting attacked by bears and uh, chased by different animals and all these just unbelievable catches and all all this amazing, just outrageous stuff that uh, in most cases was very widely exaggerated or just complete outright lies. And it's been shown actually in later years for some of these old stories that people weren't even at the places that they claimed to have done all these great, uh, incredible acts. So it, it was kind of part of writing back then. The, the quote-unquote nonfiction works were oftentimes uh, outright lies and complete fiction in, in, some, in case, certain cases. But Manley was one of those guys that, it, like, he was, he was an interesting cat. He was uh, super, super religious. Um, he, he actually was good friends and church buddies with um, Joshua Chamberlain, I believe, who was this hero in the Civil War. They grew up together in the same town. And uh, and he, Chamberlain, eventually became the governor of Maine, if I remember correctly. Uh, but he was he was a huge character. And, uh, and, and him and a few other guys that were very influential in that, that area. But anyway, he was... Uh, he was super religious. He never touched a drop of uh, alcohol, or um, he he never smoked. He would not lift a finger on Sundays, and he was very adamant that other people around him did not lift a finger on Sundays. They, it was interesting. People observed the Sabbath day even out in the big woods in those times, and they would do no work. They would they would they would be working their ever loving butts off all week long, and then. Uh, on on Sunday, they'd sit in the camp and do nothing, essentially no matter what. And even the Indians were were uh, observing that. And uh, the fu- the fur hunters who who Manly describes, uh, it was just a, a real big part of the culture back then. Um, but as I think as part of that and as part of his makeup, he he was very bothered by lies and misinformation. And he seemed to feel the need to correct everything everybody else said that he didn't think was true. And he went on like a, a letter writing campaign with all these major magazines about articles where people said things that Manly did not believe were true based on his experience. And and he just went out and outright corrected them and, and wrote letters to the editor. This, this guy's completely out of line. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and this and that, and when somebody said something about him, he was equally upset and wrote back rebuttals and went back and forth. He had he had people that um, that he had long t- 
time lifelong feuds with through these magazines. And Bill Crone outlines this in Hardy's biography quite eloquently. Um, but anyway, I guess that all that to say that Hardy did not like mistruths. And he was one of those guys that told things as they were. Sometimes he may not have been completely correct, but the way he saw things, that's, you know, that's the way he said it. He never exaggerated. And so if, as you start to begin to see his, his character makeup and how he goes about things and how he sees the world, you start to realize that there's some things in this, in these writings. They're, it's all true. He was not exaggerating. Um, you could, you could fact check a lot of the things based on uh, the circumstances and other writings from other people and everything. Um, it, and, and it's really neat that you could, it, it, it gives a lot more meaning to this writing because all the historical observations, you can really count on them as, uh, as actual fact. And so um, the, the things, the way the state was different back then, the way things have changed, it was just really incredible to read and to learn about all the different species and the things that went on and and the people that were out there in the woods. So, uh, a different time, a different world. Um, little, for a little bit more background, everything was done on foot. The travel was done on foot. He walked from. Uh, he probably took train. He took a train, I believe, to uh, a certain place, and then took a stage. Um, he took a stage to Katahdin Ironworks, and then hired a team to take him to. Uh, or he hired he hired a team to take him to Ch- Chisungkuk, where he started walking, and th- this stuff was all done on foot on either snowshoes or on logging active logging road o- operation roads, which were basically just trails in the woods that horse teams kept open. So th- this was a lot of work, a lot of walking, took a lot of time. Of quote unquote visit in the woods could be a month long. The uh, the activity in the woods was unbelievable. The actual amount of lumbering and the people, you, you don't think of that uh, in our history, but when you actually um, read some of this, uh, some of these stories, you realize, and, and you now now that, you know, thinking about it from today's perspective, there may not have been as much wood being cut at the time as there is today, but today one machine replaces 20 or 30 guys from those old uh, we were talking crosscut saw and axe days when those guys were lumbering. So it was a, a completely different animal, and it took a lot of people. And the travel took so long, and they were so remote that those guys lived in the woods all winter long, and they came out with the log drives down the rivers in the springtime. So th- there were a lot of people out there. Uh, there were essentially no game laws. There was there was a uh, that's all I have to say. There were were no bag limits on any species. There were no seasons, as far as I know. Um, This was prior to the days of game laws. There were commercial markets for things like moose hides. Um, So people would kill dozens of moose in a winter in order to to satisfy that demand. It it was a frontier. It It was a really a wild frontier. It was a hard place to be, hard place to live. But the few guys that were out there doing it, man, that could make a living doing it, boy, it must have been one heck of a life. So we're going to take a look and, and uh, we're going to read Manly Hardy, Maine Woods Walking 61. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's very long. 
but I'm going to read a passage from it. And remember, this is two years after Manly spent a fall, a couple of months in the same general area of northern Maine. And these are places that I've spent a lot of time in, I work in, and I've traveled. So uh, it was really neat to see what has changed so much in modern times uh, was like back then, 150, 160 years ago. Um, and uh, this is this is written again probably 40, 50 years later. Uh, so he has a more of a quote-unquote modern perspective. Um, but he's going back into the old area two years after he trapped it, and he's visiting his old trapping partner and just kind of getting caught up with him and, and exploring the country at the same time. Here we go. I reached Joe Morris's before breakfast. The Morris shanty consisted of a log house in a medium-sized barn situated in a small clearing about a mile from Caribou Lake. In the barn, I saw the mother of the two bear cubs and four moose, the latter having been killed by a man named Horatio Powers. That was from earlier in the story. After breakfast, I started for the head of Chisunkuk, 11 miles distant. I arrived there a little before 11 in the morning, not having seen a living thing on the way. They often speak of main miles as being good measure, but these last were the longest miles I ever saw, except those on the Tobique River in northern New Brunswick, Canada. The stopping place at the head of Chisunkuk was the same so minutely described by Thoreau in his Maine Woods. At the time, the building was a very long log structure, like four or five camps joined together, and was kept by Ansel Smith. In 1859, I happened to be there when they fastened on oxen and tore out the middle section, replacing it by a frame section, so that now the center was frame and wings were the original log structure. The place was now kept by Pete Walker, who was noted as being a man who never wore a hat, no matter how inclement the weather. Here I was met by A.B. Farah, who had heard from someone passing up on Sunday that I was coming, and had come down seven miles to meet me. Farah was a rather slender man with black hair, fine and silky as a woman's, which came down around his shoulders. He also had a very long jet black beard and mustache. A large double-edged knife hung from his belt at the left side with a 12-inch two-shooter and an elaborately carved leather case hung by a strap from his shoulders. He had with him two moose dogs, small dark-colored dogs just alike, having round yellow spots over each eye, making them look as if they had two pairs of eyes. He had come to meet me to see if I would not pilot him over into the Allagash country to see two hunters, Philbrook and Billings, with whom I was acquainted, but who were strangers to him. He wished to engage one of them to go hunting bears that spring with him. There was here at Chisunkuk a hunter named Joe McLaren, who reported that he'd been hunting with a St. Francis Indian named Frank Capino near Harrington Lake and that they'd killed about 40 moose. After dinner, I started with Farah on a seven-mile snowshoe trip to the camp where he had been stopping. I had left my boots at Joe Morris's and replaced them with a pair of moccasins. On reaching the camp where Farah was staying, I found that it was one of Strickland's camps on Rocky Rips in the west branch of the Penobscot River. The crew consisted of about 30 men of six nationalities, the boss being a Tobique Indian. As they were to break camp the next morning, the crew were having an unusual amount of fun that evening. This, this was a logging crew. Next morning was bright and pleasant, but we were obliged to wait until nearly 7 o'clock for Farrah to settle some business. While we were there, the crew broke camp after hiding their chains under the camp floor as they expected to occupy it the next season. The camp equipment they took out with them on their sleds. 
At this camp, every time the camp door opened, it would scare up a flock of nearly 200 crossbills that had been feeding about the door where the cooked slops and tea grounds had been thrown out. These sang very sweetly, the first time I had ever heard of crossbills singing. Farrah and I started about 7 o'clock without an ounce of anything to eat, as the crew were to take dinner at Northeast Cary and had nothing cooked could be furnished to us. Farrah had with him a beautiful two-and-a-half-pound axe, made by the same Alex Maxwell, Alec Maxwell, whom I had seen drinking at the Grant Farm. This later I bought of him when he went to war, and afterward lost on the south end of Long Island in Blue Hill Bay while porpoise and seal hunting with Lewis Ketchum. We had no plan. A plan in those days was uh, what, what you used, said to call uh, a map. A plan was a map. We had no plan, and Farrah was unacquainted with the country, except for a few miles. I'd been up wa- by water, the Copangomic, and also the Cockamagomic Sis, or as we call it, the Sis. Philbrook and Billings had written me that if I wished to find them, if I would come to Daggett Pond, I would find a bush in a bog on the north side which would point to a spotted line running across to Allagash, and that their camps were at the inlet of Allagash Lake. My objective point, therefore, was Daggett Pond, which is on the Sis, between Round Pond and Shallow Lake. It was about 15 miles across country, and I had to depend almost entirely upon guesswork. About the middle of the forenoon, I shot a partridge with the rifle, and we expected this to furnish our dinner. A little before noon, we unexpectedly came upon, we very unexpectedly came upon a lumber camp in the fork between two logging roads. We had not heard an axe nor seen a sign of lumbering up to this time, and by a curious chance, we came out directly in front of the camp. There was here five feet by measure of solid, settled snow. The roads were shoveled and cut squarely down like so many canals. A man on snowshoes above could hear the teamsters, but could see nothing of the horses. If anyone on snowshoes got into one of these roads, it was very difficult to get out again, and it could be done only by the help of some tree on the side. On entering the camp, the cook at once called me by name. He was just fitting out a boy with a hand sled loaded with provisions and a large coffee pot, which was to be the dinner of the men working in the woods too far off to come to the camp at noon. As usual, we were pressed to eat dinner, which we were not reluctant to do, dinner consisting of the customary baked beans, gingerbread, and strong tea. He told us we were on Little Scott Brook at one of Thistle's camps. I gave him the partridge, and we started once again without an ounce of anything to eat to finish our journey of some 15 miles. On reaching a high ridge, I got Farrah to climb and report the country to me. Cockmagomic Lake was hidden, so he could not see it, but he reported a large body of open water to the northwest. I figured on this and finally concluded that it must be the bog on Great Scott Brook. I asked him if he could see three sharp pinnacles a little east of of north. He reported that he could, and then I got him to throw a limb toward them so that I could know the exact direction. Laying my course by this, we soon crossed the Cockamagomic and struck out about the center of Daggett Pond. We found that the thaw had extended up here and the pond was glare ice. Crossing the pond, I found the bush, but as the thaw had obliterated all snowshoe tracks, and as there was a wide bog back, wide bog back margined by cedar swamp, it was pretty hard work to pick up the trail. However, we at last found it and had no difficulty in following it. When at least a mile from any water, looking between the trees, I saw something crooked lying upon the crust and said to Farrah that it looked like a dead sable. Sable is what the, the word they used to describe Martin back then. He replied that it was nothing but a dead limb. After passing it, I got another glimpse, and it looked like a sable, 
I turned aside to investigate and found a mink with his skull broken and his brains gone. Probably the work of an owl. I offered Farah half its value, $1.75, but he said that if he was such a fool that he couldn't tell a mink when it was pointed out to him, he wouldn't touch a share of it. Just beyond here, the trail passed by the carcass of a large bull moose, which Billings had still hunted on a light snow and killed with a 10-inch pistol. Coming to Ellisbrook Bog, when about halfway across, our dogs left us and soon announced that they had a moose. But as we had no time to waste, we kept on our way. A little further on, we came to Upper Ellis Pond, at the outlet of which I found a bear trap setting for otter. I afterwards found that they had caught five otter in that trap this winter. A short distance further brought us to the shore of Allagash Lake. Here our troubles began. I had never seen Allagash Lake before and only knew that Philbrook and Billings Camp was on the inlet, which I judge must be in the northwest course. The lake was about six miles long and was glare ice, so that no track could be followed. After going about two miles, we came around a point, and from there I could see something out on the ice which looked like a man. Coming up, we found it to be a one-runner toboggan, which I recognized as one that I had seen at Loon Lake in 1859 when I was hunting with Philbrook. It had been stuck up endwise and was frozen into the ice. From here I could see the valley in which the inlet must be. It was almost sunset when we reached the inlet. We could hear the water running under the ice, but all tracks were obliterated. Going up the inlet quite a distance, we found a canoe on the north bank where it had been left in the fall and covered with boughs. Where the snow had melted away, a small portion of the canoe was exposed. Going directly back from the canoe, we soon found the camp. On entering, I saw by the wavering yellow light something shine on the shelf on the opposite side of the camp. I found it was a gilt-edged testament which I had given Philbrook two years before. There was no sign of anyone having been in the camp for a number of days, but there was a hand sled, and, improving the fast-fading light with the aid of Fair's axe, we soon had a supply of wood. In the meantime, I had been digging into the snowbank outside, hoping to find where meat had been hidden to keep it from the Canada Jays. I was successful in this to the extent of finding a piece of moose ribs weighing three or four pounds. When we had lighted the fire and investigated further, we found a tent and a blanket or two for bedding, a very few beans, and some dried apples. There were cooking tools, so we soon had our meat roasting and a bean stew on the fire. The camp was a duplicate of one which Philbrook and I built two years before. It was 10 by 14 feet inside and had a half-pitch roof. Of course, it was without windows, as there was no glass to be had in that wilderness. While walking behind the fire in the evening, I felt the ground spring under my feet, and on digging away a few inches of earth, found a cavity which contained moose tongues and noses covered with small sticks. My Indian moccasins had been like pieces of tripe, cow stomach, most of the previous day after the snow had begun to thaw, and I was very much in need of something for footwear. Farah had on moose shanks, so while my feet were soaking wet, his had been perfectly dry. There were two pairs of skates in the camp, so I proposed to Farah to go back to Ellisbrook Bog and kill that moose the dogs had been barking at in order to get some shanks. Isn't that amazing? Guys, guys need footwear, they go kill a moose and make some. It was a lovely morning when we started down the lake. We had put pieces of old mitten over the heel brads of the skates so as to not injure our footwear. When we were on skates, I learned to my surprise that Farah had never learned to skate well, and it was only by steadying himself with his snowshoes and axe that he could get along at all. Our dogs seemed to enjoy the morning fully as much as we did, and kept skirting the shores and barking to express their high spirits, sometimes being so far away from us that we could hardly discern them. 
At the point where we came upon the lake the night before, I saw the name of Abel P. Willard, Brownville, upon a tree close by the shore. Apparently it was custom for people to carve out their names uh, on trees, especially places that they were hunting or trapping. That was kind of their territory. He was the man whom Dirty Donald murdered a few years after, sinking the body in Eagle Lake thoroughfare. Getting to Ellisbrook Bog, our dog soon found the moose, which proved to be an immense bull. As an experiment, I shot him near the kidneys when he rose straight up upon his hind legs and fell back perfectly dead. We skinned him out and then skinned off the shanks, which is a rather difficult thing undertaking for a novice. In order to skin a pair of moose shanks, the hide is cut around about 18 inches above the hock joint and below as much as the length of the foot requires. Then a knife has to be worked around the inside from both above and below until the whole skin has been freed from the flesh, after which the hoof has to be disjointed and the skin slipped off. We took the shanks, nose, tongue, and perhaps 20 pounds of the steak. The hide we prepared for hauling in the usual manner, which is by folding it lengthwise till it is about two feet wide, tying it in several places to prevent its unfolding, and then cutting a narrow strip from the upper edge of each of the forelegs nearly to the ears and tying the two ends together, so as to pass over the shoulders of the one hauling it. A hide prepared in this way sleds along as easy as a toboggan. We hauled the hide out to Philbrook and Billings' spotted line and left it there for them. On getting to Allagash Lake, where we took off our snowshoes, Ferris said he could not see how the stuff was to be carried, as it was all he could do to get along his skates without carrying anything. I told him I thought I could take all the rest myself. So I laid down the snowshoes one upon the other, and passing a string through one of the footholes on each side, I tied them tightly together. I then placed the meat and shanks on top, and also laid on a beautiful cock Canada grouse, at the top of whose head I had knocked off with a bullet. The I assume he's when he says Canada grouse, he's uh, talking about spruce grouse. These I tied fast with another snowshoe string, while the fourth I tied into the toes of the snowshoes and took in my hand as a sled rope. In this way, I drew the whole load along without any trouble. After reaching the camp and getting dinner, the next thing was to prepare my shanks for wearing. This was done by turning the shank flesh side out, inserting a piece of split cut to fit, and shaving off all the loose flesh and muscle. Then they, they are covered with salt, which is rubbed in the, with the back of a sheath knife. The distance the foot requires is next measured off and the toe is trimmed in a semicircular shape, the cutting being done from the flesh side so as not to clip the hair and make an ugly looking seam. After sewing the toe with strong thread, the seam is filled with moose tallow. More salt is put on and they are left overnight and again rubbed thoroughly in the morning. Shanks prepared in this way are perfectly watertight and will need no further attention till worn out, except to rub in more salt occasionally. When worn, Small holes are cut around the top, about two inches apart, through which a string is passed. They are pulled out on like a stocking, drawn up tightly around the calf of the leg, and the string is passed around the back of the leg and tied again in front. As we could not wait for Philbrook and Billings to come to us, <clears throat> we started early the next morning to try and find them. All snowshoe tracks were nearly obliterated, and we had a hard time finding a spotted line which led to their next camp. After traveling several miles, we came to a small pond surrounded by cedars. It was the lower one of the upper Allagash ponds. Crossing this in a short time, we came to a second. As we were going down a long swell of open hardwood land, while still a long distance off, we saw a man approaching it. It proved to be T.W. Billings of Brownville, better known as Waldo Billings. And he notes here that it was a guy who um, 
uh, a right another writer Forrest and Stream uh, talk has written about extensively. He said that his partner Philbrook and he had separated a week before to be gone two weeks. That Philbrook was somewhere on the headwaters of the Upper St. John, and that if we would return with him to the home camp, he would go with us to find Philbrook. Billings was carrying the old three-barreled two-shooter, which Hiram L. Leonard, the noted fly rod maker, had made in 1857. As there probably has never was never another like it, I will describe it. It was a three-barreled gun, which revolved so that but one hammer was needed. Two barrels were rifled to carry a half-ounce round ball. The other was of the same caliber, but made smooth to fire shot. Each barrel was two-shootered, as it was called, which also was an invention of Mr. Leonard's, that is, each barrel had a second tube far enough beyond its first to admit a full charge below it. When the gun was loaded, two charges were loaded, one on top of the other. In firing the first, the hammer came down upon a piece of metal which fired the first cartridge, then by touching a spring, this flew up out of the way and the second charge was fired as if from an ordinary gun. Proceeding in company with Billings, we crossed lengthwise of the lower of the two upper Allagash ponds, and going through a short thoroughfare, came to the upper one where his camp was situated, about halfway up the pond on the north side. This pond, by the way, is only about two miles from Chemkozabamptikuk, the highest water in the state, in itself, but a little lower. That's uh, Ross Lake. Chemkozabamptikuk is an Indian name that uh, most people today call call Ross Lake. It's a place where I spent quite a bit of time working and fishing. It's a, it's a beautiful area. Yeah, you can drive to it now. On approaching the camp, I was surprised to see what looked like an immense washing hung out to dry. It proved to be 25 or 30 shaved moose hides all in a row stretched on poles. In stretching moose hides, our hunters were accustomed to hang the hide neck up from the slanting pole and shave all the hair off clean with a sharp knife. It took an expert from a quarter to half an hour to shave a moose hide, and when done, the hide was as clean as a man's face after a shave. In stretching a hide, two poles some ten feet long, about the size of a man's arm, each having a fork at the upper end, were driven solidly into the ground about the distance apart that a moose hide would reach. The hide then had slits five or six inches long, cut all along the edge from the neck to the end of the hide. Through these loops, a pole was run, each end of which was put in one of the crotches. When a pole had been run along the lower edge of the hide in a corresponding manner, the hunter would put his knee upon one end, drawing it down as tightly as possible, lash it to the upright with bark. After securing the other end of the pole in like manner, he would cut a small, small separate holes in each end of the hide, and passing a piece of bark through, secure the ends to the uprights. Then all adhering meat and fat was removed. In warm weather in the fall, the thick hide on the back of the neck and on the hips was slashed crosswise a number of times, just deep enough to cut the grain in order to facilitate drying. When the hides were nearly dry, but before they came too, became too stiff, they were taken out of the frames and folded, first lengthwise and then crosswise, so as to make a snug pack about 3 feet long by 18 inches wide. The shaved hides of a full-grown moose would weigh from 10 to 20 pounds, according to the size and season when taken, fall hides being much the heaviest. The bark used in stretching was usually cedar, though that of elm and basswood was sometimes used. Philbrook and Billings had taken advantage of the smooth surface of the ice, through which they had cut holes, sticking their poles down into the mud below and slanting them so as to receive the full benefit of the sun. After dinner, we retraced our steps to the lower pond. About halfway down this on the west side, we took a town line running west, which they had respotted as a sable line. 
This line we followed some six miles, the whole length of the township, on the way taking two sables and a rabbit out of their log traps. This is something that in uh, a fall fur hunt in Maine mainly describes these log traps for Martin and bigger ones for Fisher, but it is these intricately carved uh, deadfalls on on logs that were were made. They were made on the spot. They they didn't have steel traps to carry around. They had a few for bear or for larger ones for beaver, but um, it was just wasn't feasible to carry a bunch of traps around. And I don't know how many small traps were available at the time, uh, but uh, th- they did most of their Martin trapping with these deadfalls. And it's pretty incredible how they, how, how ingenious you have to be to actually come up with this and to make these. Um, they had like, you know, they had uh, obviously apparatus holding the, the deadfall portion up above the log. And then they'd have a, a stick with bait on it that, that would trigger that to fall down. And uh, just uh, quite, a, quite a process. And in a fall fur hunt in Maine, you'll see uh, some pictures of that and, and exactly how those are are. Uh, built. Here let me say that a rabbit will eat meat or fish of any kind nearly as quickly as a cat would. It is certainly not done for the sake of the salt contained as they take perfectly fresh meat. Red squirrels also, as every hunter knows, will eat any kind of fresh meat or fish. They'll also eat each other out of traps, as I have seen dozens of times. Incidentally, I may say that on the way across I shot another moose, purposely hitting him in the kidneys to note the effect of the shot. After striking a few clips at the dogs, he reared straight up on his hind legs and fell back dead. After reach- There must have been a lot of moose back then in that area. After reaching the end of the town line, we turned short to the south, and after about half a mile, came to one of Philbrook's camps on a small pond on St. John's waters. Here, a fire out of doors was still burning, and near it were the freshly skinned bodies of two each of beaver lynx, and sable. Now, Manley's observation of lynx uh, is, uh, he, he talks about them a lot, very extensively in his writings. It's pretty interesting to note that, you know, although for many years prior to them coming back, you know, lynx were in Maine uh, historically. They, they just kind of seem to, their, their range has shifted further north and then back further south again. Uh, over time, uh, obviously, swings in population that's probably tied to changes in habitat has, seems to have driven that. But, but they did certainly had a lot of links back then. A snowshoe track, only two or three hours old, led south. This was as far as Billings had ever been, but he had heard Philbrick speak of having another camp. We concluded to follow the track, taking with us half of one of the beavers for fear of his not having enough meat for so many visitors. After about two miles, the track led to a stream with high banks, where was a beaver house above a very short dam. We found where Philbrook had just set two traps for him. The beaver was living on newly cut wood, and I saw where he had felled a large white birch lengthwise of the stream instead of, as their usual custom, toward the water. This had evidently been, evidently been done intentionally so that as he cut them off, he could roll the pieces, they being too heavy for him to drag in if they had been lying lengthwise. After walking a mile or two further, we came to another small pond, on the further side of which we could see the smoke of Philbrook's camp. Approaching, we told Billings to go in first, and I remember Philbrook's asking what in the world sent him over there so quick. After Farrah and myself slid down into the camp and received a hearty welcome 
as Philbrick had been my partner in the fall of 59 on Cockamagamic. His camp, which had been built before the snow came, was about 7 feet by 10 feet, and intended for only one man. One had to slide down in order to get into the door, as the snow was 4 or 5 feet deep. It was a single camp, the back being made of split fur, and protected from fire by rocks and earth piled against it. Our whole outfit of cooking tools consisted of one pint dipper and a very shallow plate. In the corner next to the door, Philbrick had his cooking establishment. Here he had a birch bark dish in which he mixed his flour, his water being in another dish of birch bark. He rolled out his bread on a sheet of birch bark with a rolling pin made from a stick of peeled maple. His food consisted entirely of meat, bread, and tea. He baked the bread in a tin plate and fried his meat in the same plate, using a stick, split stick for a handle. The place was not large enough to get ourselves and our snowshoes, and at night we had to leave our snowshoes out of doors. We had to lie edgewise and pass the dogs over us, using them for pillows. When Philbert got supper, we ate up the moose meat he'd fried in his tin plate so fast that it was a good while before he got his turn. The pond where Philbert was camped was in what is now called Desolation, and is the pond where Pete LaFontaine was shot by a warden. And De- Desolation is a place that uh, I've been to as well. It's kind of kind of interesting. I've noticed that within a few years, several sportsmen have written of discovering some of these ponds, and having been the first to traverse this wilderness. I will say that 50 years ago, all of this country had been accurately mapped, and the man who within that time has discovered any place in Maine not visited before has about much right to claim the discovery as I should to discover Boston Common. There is not a square mile in the state that has not been hunted over a great many times. So that's interesting to hear Hardy talk about, uh, you know, back by the 1850s, uh, the the Maine woods was extensively explored, mapped. There was a lot of lumbering going on. There, the people were trapping and, and hunting animals. And, and uh, so, so there were a lot of, there was a lot going on. Now, the, the thing I will say is that Hardy was one of the only people that actually wrote stuff down. And so even though there were maps and there had been people there, by that time, 50 years later, most of those people were dead. And, of course, 100 years later, 150, 200 years, you know, things fade away pretty fast. So it, it can feel like you're going to a place and, and maybe you're the first one that's ever been there because, honestly, you're probably the first, you, you may be the first living person that's been in some some areas. Um, but but he's right. Back in the, you know back in those days, uh, you, you got to remember that uh, that that area was extensively tra- traversed. In the morning, I found that my right ankle was very badly swollen. I was not aware of having sprained it, and judged it came from the pull down of the green moose shanks I had been wearing. Nevertheless, I started with Philbrook to look his traps. He showed me where the beaver were when he first found them, and the dam which they had built. It was the most singular one I ever saw. There were but two beavers, and they had built the house just where the brook entered the pond. As there was no chance to get any flowage on the stream, they had enclosed a portion of the pond about 50 feet long by one half as wide, with a semicircular dam about two feet above the level of the pond. Instead of making the dam in the usual manner, they had put down sticks endwise, which, which uh, still projected above the ice, and had filled in with brush and mud. The dam had a wasteway in the center, and had raised the water about 18 inches above the level of the pond. On coming back, a most singular thing occurred. As I walked across the pond and was just stepping over the dam close to the wasteway, the beaver suddenly plumped 
over the dam into the pond, throwing mud and water upon my snowshoe. We'd probably disturbed him in looking traps two miles above, and both of us had arrived at the dam at nearly the same moment. I did not see the beaver fairly, but saw the water bulge up and a large dark-colored mass plunge into the pond below the dam. Okay, in the interest of time, of time I'm going to skip uh, a little bit here. They talk about going on a couple of moose hunts and uh, get finished off, off with those um, they're, and they're traveling now. It was now April and spring was coming on with a rush. In places where projecting points increased the flow of the current, the stream had already begun to open. We reached the home camp and as the next day was Sunday and we intended to rest, we laid in a good supply of wood. Sunday we did some extra cooking for here we had a baker and could have soft bread. Also, it fell to my lot to cook some moose noses, of which we had a good supply. The moose nose and the beaver's tail are considered two, the two great delicacies of the woods. As few now know how to prepare them, it may not be amiss to record the way the hunters did it. No amount of scalding will remove the hair from a moose nose, and the Indian method was to singe them on the coals and then to scrape them. But this always gives them a burnt taste, so I have always preferred to skin them. This is most easily done by splitting the nose through the septum and pinning one half firmly down with a fork so that it will not slip about while working on it. Afterward, the nose is boiled several hours till it becomes tender. Beaver's tails are usually roasted upon a stick before skinning or sometimes made into a soup with rice. Philbrook and Billings had begun their hunt in September, spending the first five or six weeks in building camps, spotting lines, and making traps. In the time they had been out, they had taken about 100 sable, 20 lynx, 9 otter, about as many fisher, and quite a large number of mink and beaver, and had shot about 40 moose. In 1859, I had hunted with Philbrook, having our home camp at the head of Cockamagomic, and our lines of traps extending over six different townships. One line, which started from about six miles out on Baker Lake Cary, and went northwest ended within less than half a mile of where we found Philbrook encamped. On this hunt, before the last of November, we took four bears, four fisher, three lynx, two otter, seven beaver, fifty sable, thirty-five mink, and seventy-five muskrats. Although moose were so plenty, we saw the tracks of only four, and only one live one, a bull which came to the sound of chopping and kept Philbrook prisoner in his camp for more than an hour, walking back and forth in front of the fire like a sentinel and grunting. Philbrook and Billings told me of two curious experiences they'd had that winter with Otter. They showed me the skin of one shot fairly through the body, back of the shoulders. He was shot by Billings at 125 paces, he said, and after being shot, dived into his hole and went under the ice. Philbrook and Billings cut ice and worked fishing for him with hooks and long poles nearly half a day. After having given up, one of them said he would make a last look, hook for luck. This time, he was fortunate enough to fasten to the Otter. On another occasion, Philbrook, when out exploring, was snowshoeing up the bed of a stream. On turning a point, he saw an otter lying on the ice directly facing him. As it was useless to try to get nearer, he fired at him with his 10-inch pistol from where he stood. The otter did not move, and he supposed he'd shot him dead. On going up and seeing his eyes look lively, he struck the otter on the head with his belt hatchet. When he skinned it, he failed to find a trace of any wound. Monday morning we were up bright and early, Philbrook to go back to his camp, Farah to go across Chamberlain and Eagle to Haymock, the lumberman's corruption of Pongaquahamock. That's interesting, I didn't know that's where the, the uh, name Haymock came from, I've, I've been there many times as well. 
but uh, apparently that's, it's a shortening of a, an Indian word, which lies on the right branch of Smith Brook, emptying into Eagle Lake, while Billings and myself started for the foot of Cockamgomic Lake, where he was going to get supplies from a lumber camp. On the way down, Billings showed me where he had shot a doe caribou a short time before. This, as far as I can learn, was the third caribou killed in Maine after they began to return, and although a cow, she had horns nearly two feet long. And the rest of the story is basically Hardy uh, going back, heading back to town on his, his long journey home. Um, he Another interesting thing he points out is uh, that, that by the time he got back to one of the lumber camps, there was already rumors and talk of uh, the South and the uh, Civil War that potentially starting up and a bunch of guys that, that were, uh, were going to go and enlist and sign up to fight. And he mentioned uh, the names of a bunch of different people that were either lumbermen or uh, trappers that that ended up going and signing up and going into war. Hardy and his friend Philbrick were both both had health reasons that they were not admitted uh, to fight in the war. But he said a, a very very large percentage of of those guys from out in the woods went uh, went to fight, and uh, no doubt it changed a lot of the the culture and society and and. Uh, in the way things were in the woods back then. But anyway, a little piece of history there for you. thought you might be uh, interested in, in how people lived, how they got around, the camps that they built, the trapping, a little bit of the trapping methods. And uh, give me a little feedback if you're interested in learning more. And, uh, and I will be working on that fall for hunt in Maine, which is almost strictly trapping and uh, a much longer account uh, of a trip in that same area at the same time. 1859, long time ago. So anyway, with that, let's get into the Cots Bros message of the week. And this week, Kyle and Kellen want to share with us that they are in, they are looking for glands, caster, and skunk essence, and there is high demand right now. Uh, the market is has been blowing up. Lots and lots of people purchasing, but there's not a lot of uh, glands coming in and, and other byproducts coming in. So, Cotsboros are in the market for glands, castor, and skunk essence, paying a premium for large quantities of fox and bobcat glands. Visit Cotsboros.com for current pricing. And uh, again, guys, this is a great opportunity if you're catching animals in any number because um, people are, stuff is just so hard to find. Uh, I, I've i been trying to get cast, beaver castorium. It's, I had to go, well, I always go with Cotsbros, but uh, they were out. They had some tincturing, tincturing that wasn't ready yet. And uh, I had to go to a couple of different places before I actually found some somebody that had some in stock. And uh, it's, it's one of those deals that, uh, everything's getting that way. Things are just getting so much more difficult to get a hold of. The supply chains are all messed up, and um, the fur market's low. So there, it's funny. A lot of people are buying supplies and getting out trapping, but my guess is that those those really high producers are just aren't getting after it as much because of the low prices. So you know, one one guy might be buying uh, a bunch of lure to go out and target a few different species, but the guy that's that's buying lure and also, you know, putting up big numbers of animals uh, is not necessarily producing those this year. So these prices are up, and uh, Cotsbros, you know, they they need this stuff. They they use it in lure making, and they recognize that 
the the supply is being crunched and so they they raise their prices and and they want to buy it so yeah check it out get take an opportunity to to capitalize on that and that's it for tonight's episode be sure to check out uh, trapping today's store and support all our sponsors i really very much appreciate that and always appreciate hearing from you guys so with that keep on talking trapping keep on thinking trapping we will catch you on the next episode 